Hey everybody and welcome back to another edition of the Open Forum podcast. Today we have with us Dr. Gary Sidley. Gary Sidley is a former consultant clinical psychologist with the NHS, having retired in 2013 and since then stayed pretty active um, in multiple different ways with multiple different organizations and more recently and sort of what brings us here today has been involved in the heart group and if i'm not mistaken your organization smile free as well uh and uh we're we're just going to dive on into that he's got over three decades of experience working as a clinical psychologist more than i've got on the planet so gary please take it away why don't you take two minutes introduce yourself and then we'll dive on in Okay, thank you. Um, say my name is Gary Sidley. Um, in brief, what my background is, is I left school at 18 back in 1977, I think it was. Um, did a science degree, biochemistry, physiology first. So I was doing, I was a proper scientist in those days. Um, and just before I graduated in, uh, from Leeds University in 1980, I kind of thought, I don't really want to work in a lab. Mental health seems much more interesting. So I, I kind of made a decision at that point to pursue a career in uh, psychology. Um, so when I left university in 1980, I entered the NHS uh, as, a, as a nursing assistant, actually, on an acute admission ward to begin with, uh, then qualified later as a psychiatric nurse, worked through the early part of the 1980s. Uh, and then in 1987, which was always the plan, really, uh, and then changed kind of profession and went on to train as a clinical psychologist. Thereafter, working for 34 years in adult mental health services in the NHS for the last kind of 14, 15 years of that as a, as a consultant um, clinical psychologist. I was fortunate to be able to opt for early retirement in 2013. Um, and at that time, I was actively campaigning for better mental health services. Um, I think we could do a lot better than kind of a biological psychiatry illness like any other, too much focus on drugs, really. Uh, so I, I put my energies into various campaign groups, um, wrote a book in 2015 called Tales from the Madhouse um, and kind of uh, was kept busy you know, in various groups, working alongside ex-psychology colleagues and some new ones, trying to improve mental health services. Um, I think we always regarded um, biological psychiatry as a bit of a tyranny in its own, in its own really, um, to trample on human rights around the Mental Health Act, etc., etc. Well, in 2020, of course, that relatively specific tyranny was replaced by a much larger one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so since the beginning of 2020, um, I've been putting my energies into trying to resist what I see is a, a very concerning direction of travel uh, for us and helping me do that. I've been involved, as you alluded to, some three particular groups. Uh, one is the HEART, the, the, the Health Advisory uh, Group, um, the Smile Free, smilefree.org, which is the anti-mass mandate group. Uh, very passionate about masks and how, how they are the most insidious of all the restrictions. Um, and more recently, Panda, which is a bit more kind of uh, looking academically at some of the propaganda uh, stuff. Okay. And my three, just to finish that little bit off, my, my, my three main areas uh, around the COVID stuff are psychological nudging, masks, and of course, some of the mental health consequences of restrictions. Yeah, I think that the mental health uh, aspect as a result of the restrictions is something that will be interesting to touch on to, especially given your prior work into um, biologics and advocating for <clears throat> patient rights, essentially, mm. uh, and almost a vindication of your advocating for that in the last um 
couple of months, there's been a few more scientific papers that have come out to support um, the fact that SSRIs are not less effective, but potentially have no effect, um, which, you know, uh, you've been campaigning for that for quite some time. I've been made familiar with that from Irving Kirsch's work as well in that area. And I, I think that's something that maybe we'll touch on towards the end, especially given what your doctorate thesis was in with, um, uh, what was it? Predictors for, for suicide, I believe. So that could be quite an interesting topic to dive into with yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but why don't we start at the start and go back to, like you said, what the mask mandates were and what the measures that were used against the populace en masse as tools that were fear-inducing and specifically designed to be fear-inducing. I think a nice quote that I've got from uh, Spy B is that the perceived level of threat needs to be increased among those who are complacent using hard-hitting emotional messaging. And that was in March the 22nd of 2020. Now, it only really kicked off in the sort of Western world in feb end of feb and they'd already decided within a month hey guys we need to hit them hard Mm. and pull on their heartstrings Mm. but no one was the wiser in the general public as to what was happening to them and the way that their thoughts and views and the way they looked at their families and friends were being manipulated as well why don't we start there yes um the kind of uh, psychological well, let's you know, let's use the right words. Manipulation, I think, from the outset, uh, was clearly strategic, as evidenced by those minutes that you, you, you you've mentioned. Um, and I think that's one of the first things that actually struck me, uh, Sonny, back in from January, February two thousand and twenty. To be honest, I was I was very concerned even then. I'm not I'm not blowing my own trumpet there, but I you know I was saying this is not right. This isn't right, you know. I think that's possibly because I did have a background in risk and risk assessment and risk aversion, um, as well as a full grasp of how egregious the <laughs> big pharma <laughs> companies can, can be. At the very least, the you know they always tend to overstate the advantages and uh, underreport the harms. To put it uh, mildly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's not the least, yeah. Um, and also in my NHS career, I did interface at times with uh, infection control uh, departments, and I don't want to—I don't want to kind of sully the whole infection control kind of profession. But one thing that I always kind of familiar with was always struck me about them was that they, even though they, I think they often meant well, they could be rather kind of uh, mono-focused in their in their approach and uh, not see the bigger picture. Almost like horses with blinders on. Yeah, like, that's right. Yeah, so so all those things I think maybe was were advantageous, and I thought that this this isn't right. You know, there's, there's something wrong here, and I started to do my own research and dig into the figures and look at some of the tactics that were being used. And this is when it became crystal clear to me about the the nudge units. You know, the behavioural scientists who, interestingly, are embedded in in pretty much every department of government i think people would be surprised at how many behavioral scientists are around not just in the public health sphere but and on advisory groups but but, but in you know, the tax departments in uh, insidious <laughs> isn't it like, the, the extent to which they've gone to since I, I mean it said that it's from david cameron's cabinet in 2010 mm. but that is uh, not to sound kooky but that's just what we know of Mm. what's available information but if you look at a company like cambridge analytica that was essentially what they were doing Mm. you know that it had to stem from somewhere behavioral science has been around for a long long time Um, and some of the strategies some of the so-called nudges have been used by the state and by private companies, of course, to sell their wares for, for, for many decades. Um, 
But I think the thing that changed in early 2020 was just the intensity and you know, the, the comprehensive coverage, of it, particularly driven by, you know, the, by the state. Um, and these methods, you know, the whole range of, 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 of nudges, of you know, behavioral science uh, techniques of persuasion and just if anybody is in doubt, you know, the definition of a nudge is a kind of psychological strategy of persuasion that has its influence often below the level of someone's conscious awareness. So people don't know that they are being influenced uh, when, they, when, they, when they are. And it kind of contrasts quite starkly with the traditional methods of government persuasion, like information provision and argument and you know, rational debate uh, kind of thing. So people it's accepting it as this is information being put over to me, not being manipulated behind the scenes and being brought to a final idea without knowing that someone has essentially led them along the alleyway without them realising. That's right, that's, that's spot on, yeah. And uh, like I said, there's a wide range of these nudges, but I, I think there's three that have been particularly uh, concerning around their ethical basis. The most obvious one is fear of inflation. Um, you know, the idea, I suppose, exploiting the idea that when someone is fearful, that does have an impact on their kind of cognitive faculties. So that if someone's in a state of, uh, of anxiety, um, they will tend to focus selectively on things that are threatening in their environment. They'll tend to have preferential access to scary memories from the past. They'll tend to interpret things in a more scary way. And that, that's been exploited uh, by the behavioral scientists in a big way to, to get us to follow the restrictions. Alongside that, and equally as uh, egregious in my view, are, are, are the so-called ego nudge and the so-called norm nudge. I'll just explain that. The ego nudge is the technical term for shaming, really, <laughs> where the you know, where human beings uh, tend to like to view themselves as being... Uh, decent, virtuous, good human beings. Um, and they're reluctant to see ourselves as, as the, the opposite of that. So what the nudges did from an early stage was they associated following the restrictions with being a good individual um, and not following the restrictions or the vaccine rollout for that matter as being bad. Uh, normative pressure plays on the fact that we we all kind of feel rather uncomfortable being in a minority um, so we tend to want to go with the herd rather than uh, you know, kind of stand out as a, as a minority yeah sticking your head above the parapet and and taking the flack I, I was yeah. called a murderer by my colleagues for by a colleague of mine and um, for not wanting to get jabbed and um, I was told I was the reason that we kept going in and out of lockdowns and whatnot. And I can totally see how these ego nudges would uh, convince someone to just start towing the party line. Yeah, yeah that's quite right. You know, and uh, nudged has been responsible for, for things like that. Uh, Sonny, you know, the vilification of the unvaccinated, you know, that's, that's undoubtedly been a, been a consequence of, of nudging. As for the whole other raft of collateral damage, of course, you know, mm. mental health, but also, you know, the tens of thousands of non-COVID excess deaths that we've had throughout this period and still continuing to endure. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, how many of them are likely to be the direct result of people being too fearful to present to hospital or old people? You know, dying of loneliness on, on because they're too scared to have their relatives around. You know, and uh, so so these these kind of methods do have some pretty serious ethical uh, consequences. Although the stakeholders do seem rather reluctant to engage in a in a constructive conversation about the ethics, which is rather uh... getting them to acknowledge it is already a task enough on its own let alone engaging on it. Right. Yeah. What's norm nudging then? Norm is where, is where you actually exploit that. So the, the most obvious way that they've done that throughout the COVID era was to say things like, uh, 
you know, 90, 97% of people are following the lockdowns. 95% of adults have got the vaccination. Yeah. You know, that's the most, that's the simplest kind of version of it. But the, the masterstroke, from the nudges point of view, though, was our friend, the masks, because mm-hmm. that that is a very kind of clear indication about who's following the rules and who isn't, you know. Uh, because the thing about normative pressure is that, yeah, you can keep on telling people that they're in a minority and that, that works to some degree, but th- then it starts to wane in its intensity. You have to keep reminding them. Yeah. With masking, you know, you don't need to because there's something built into the population that instantly differentiates between those that are following the rules and those that aren't, mm. between the good guys and the bad guys. Uh, so, in, like I've always argued with masks that, you know, given that flip flop that happened in early summer 2020, when all the, you know, early to 2020, as you probably know, all the experts yeah. were saying, you know, across Europe and America, masks are no good. You, know, you can't mask the healthy. It's, it's unhelpful. It'll cause more harm than good. And then between about April, May and June 2020, it kind of completely flipped. And that wasn't any response to any any kind of rigorous study or kind of strict Nothing at all. Yeah. Clearly that, was a, that was a political decision. And I'm convinced that one of the key factors was that it helped the nudging process because masks are a great compliance device. And that seems to me the most uh, likely reason for that kind of uh, that U-turn back in uh, 2020. I mean, not only did they go back to saying masks were the be-all and end-all, but in America, at least, they started talking about double and triple masking, as silly as that sounds. And... Uh, looking back today but people were genuinely double masking and triple masking and i had patients coming into me in clinic with two masks on and i thought to myself you your poor soul you you've been had and this isn't the time nor place for me to tell you that you've been had because i i fear that that's just going to break down the therapeutic relationship that we've built up at this point and you're going to be so set in your way that if someone tries to break that belief that you have then it's going to be war because this is so deep-seated into people it's not just a mild thing like oh i like the color blue you like pink whatever this is really it it got down to almost as fundamental as religion for some people whether you would mask or you know people were being excommunicated from families not being allowed to go for christmas dinner because they weren't following some aspect of the rules it it's unbelievable the extent to which that that the nudges worked of course they're designed to of course we've got behavioral scientists that yeah have spent a long time looking into these things but very very powerful and i think it is shameful the impact that it's had on on people um i'm sure i'm not i'm not alone in having witnessed uh, people who are in the street who are just petrified, you know, who, who jump out the way almost into the middle of the, the road, road. Yeah. get away from you kind of thing. Uh, you know, that is really sad. And uh, the, the impact that's had on a lot of people, a lot of them elderly, not all, but a lot of them are elderly who, who are struggling to breathe anyway and are kind of staggering around the streets with mass even maybe double masks on, you know, it's, it, it really is, it's, it's shameful. Um, and, you know, I think there should be some comeback for that. Can you give any examples of other nudges that were given to people, which they might not be aware of? Because one of the things that we have to do looking forwards is attempt to try to educate ourselves so that we are cognizant of it. If, and when the next mm. time rolls around, we have a situation like this. Yeah, sure. Um, if you take the the appetite nudge, the fear uh, nudge, um, then the most obvious kind of the way that was exploited was through some of the slogans that we used. You know, stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. If you go out, people will die. Um, no one is safe until we're all safe. <laughs> 
you know, that was a classic one. In fact, this is, that, those examples are actually fear-inducing and exploit the ego nudge as well, because it's kind of saying that if you're a virtuous person... Yeah, you're you going to stay home. You, you, yeah. you stay at all. Um, but some of the... Some of the some of the fear fear ones were like the the uh, the stats that were you know the daily death count that was given uh, non contextualized you know not recognizing for example that sixteen hundred people die every day under normal circumstances yeah. uh, and when when deaths reduced then it was cases wasn't it these kind of meaningless kind of cases large number of which would have probably been asymptomatic. We had that recurrent footage, didn't we, from Lombardy in Italy, in northern Italy, I think, uh, at the beginning of the, of the COVID era, you know, and uh, sort of uh, uh, images of acutely unwell people in, uh, in intensive care units. Yeah, yeah. You know, people dying in their um, apartments because they couldn't get out. And then you had the footage of people in China dropping dead on the streets and convulsing and all the rest of it, which coffins piling up in New York. That was another one they were showing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that kind, of, that kind of thing. So, yeah. so they, they, they were all towards fear. Um, told, I've mentioned some of the things about the ego nudge already, really. But another one for the ego, which again, remember, is associating following the restrictions with being a virtuous person. Is that actor on telly that you know saying things like you know I, I wear my mask to protect my mates, you know uh, I, I make space to protect you, you know yeah, this, yeah. this kind of thing, uh, and uh, it's a normative pressure one we've already discussed, haven't we? Which is often quoted dodgy statistics, you know, like uh, like you know ninety two percent of adults are already vaccinated. That's what the BBC was claiming yeah. in the week of the documentary, and uh, seems more likely probably around twenty percentish are not vaccinated would be a more accurate figure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's to boost course, the numbers, right? Yeah, because the mass beautifully uh, kind of um, reinforced those three nudges. It increased fear for obvious reasons. If you're wearing a mask, it suggests one of us is a biohazard. Uh, and we need to be really cautious, um, as well as interestingly keeping fear going. Um, mm -hmm. the, I don't know whether you're familiar with the concept of safety behaviour, but uh, yeah, a bit, bit like wearing a garlic clove around your neck to keep Dracula at bay. People believe it works because Dracula doesn't get you. Yeah. Uh, same with this. You know, if you go out wearing a mask, even if nothing bad happens, day after day after day, there'd be part of you at the end of it that's thinks at some level in your head it was a near miss that i got away with it this time because of my mask you know yeah yeah, yeah. Whereas, keeps, the, keeps the fear going whereas if you drop the mask you're you're, you're then open to new learning you yeah can, so in a situation where someone hasn't been massively manipulated in that way to believe that the mask is a thing saving their lives what yeah. they would find again in a normal situation is five six days wearing a mask going out oh actually nothing happened i don't need the mask but in this instance, it's five, six days. They've gone out with the mask. They come home safe. I, I, the only reason I got back home today, the only reason I survived this apocalyptic I am legend scenario here was because of the mask. And that's my be all and end all. It's my savior. Yes. And that's, that's kind right. of why. Yeah. That's why we keep saying the masks are so insidious, really. I think they are really, really unhelpful in all kinds of ways and at several different levels. Um, I think also it kind of alludes to as well about people often say how, how can how can we get more people to speak up about what's 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 gone on and what's continuing to go on, um, and that's really difficult, isn't it? Because you know, as you implied earlier, you know, a lot of people are very very scared. A lot of people see it more as a religion now, religious intensity. Um, so I've always been of the view, really just using the kind of psychological principles that, you know, the, the people, if you look at this like a spectrum continuum where you've got people who are more skeptical at one, you know, maybe the, I don't know, 10, 20% now, maybe at one, one, one end of the spectrum. And then you've got the really kind of strongly strident dominant narrative people at the other. 
I, I think the, the key group is the silent middle, the ones ones in the, in the centre, because I think the strident pro-narrative people aren't really going to change anytime soon. You know, they're too invested in it now. They've, they've kind of, you know, they've, they've kind of broadcast their views so widely and, uh, and often quite stridently that it's going to take a brave man or woman, I think, to kind of uh, start to... Approach unwrap. the conversation and unwrap it all with them. Yeah, yeah. That middle group, I think, you know, there's people who are with a whole range of ambivalence, I think, various degrees of ambivalence about at least some aspects of it. And I think it's that group that we're, fingers crossed, you know, or we hope will uh, come, you know, come across to maybe more awareness about what's going on. Yeah. Um, with that said, though, just to play devil's advocate on this, what why is it so bad if their intentions were just to help us if this was just to help society at large and what we've seen here with the norm uh pressures that it's for the greater good why is it so bad then yeah i think that's the noble lie i can anticipate that these yeah. noble noble lies and uh it's probably worth just on the in answering that, just, just to say that I, I've gone through, I think, at least three phases of trying to explain what's actually happening. In the early stages, I was attributing it to, to panic and incompetence. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I never have been. I've never been on a march prior to uh, 2020. You know, I'm quite a naive guy. Yeah. work hard. Broadly believe what the government's telling me by and large. But then that, that became the inadequate explanation. Then so it moved into like opportunistic agendas, jumping on this, you know. And then I don't think that's adequate anymore. I do I do very much believe that this this was kind of yeah, virtually planned. Actually, like a globe, you no, know, at least they planned to exploit the next pandemic. And I, and I think there's enough evidence, accumulate evidence now. Um, about some pretty uh, egregious globalist actors that are, are uh, kind of pushing this to the detriment of the vast majority of us and to the betterment of a few kind of elites. Yeah. Which, yeah. you know, if somebody said that to me in 2020, I'd have probably called them a conspiracy theorist. So I appreciate that might sound extreme, but the more I study, the more I look into this, Sonny, the more kind of... Uh, um, I think it's uh, it's been exploited at the very least in a big, big way. Some of these guys were having uh, desktop exercises, mimicking what the, what they would do in these kind of circumstances. Event two hundred one was specifically a coronavirus pandemic, and then you had. I want to say maybe three months afterwards, a monkeypox outbreak, tabletop exercise as well, uh, which we're now sitting in the middle of, if you yeah. ask uh, Tedros from The Who. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, no, so I, I wholeheartedly see where you're coming from with that. But back, but back to your original question about you know, the noble lie, that, that, I know that would fall down uh, when you actually look at things like the restrictions, you know, which for the most part, Pretty much almost totally have been non-evidenced, you know, uh, contentious. They've kind of um, trampled all over our basic human rights. And there's then, as you know, through the, the, the pandemic management plan that was carefully put together prior to 2020 was just completely ripped up and thrown out the window. So, you know, they've jumped in with these kind of contentious restrictions that you know there's no by and large no real evidence for them benefits a lot of evidence now that they do a lot of harm um and and trampling over basic rights in the you know along the way and i just think if you're going to do something like that you've got to be you know, to mandate things and to, to, to use some kind of fear and coercion you for that to be justified you've got to be pretty confident that what you're doing is no hugely beneficial to our yeah. society yeah, it's 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 funny you mentioned that our previous pandemic plans were thrown out the window because it seems like as soon as China started doing their lockdowns, 
that was the thing that was adopted across the globe. Mm. Essentially, the WHO decided, hey, this is a this is a decent response, guys. You know, we should follow this. And all of a sudden, every other country fell like dominoes in the sense of bringing in these hard lockdowns. You can't leave your house. In Ireland, you were 5K from your house, and that was it. In Australia, you weren't allowed out unless it was for set things. You were arrested and thrown into uh, quarantine camps if you dared to break the rules or what have you. Uh, and yeah, I, I could go on on the different places that a an approach that flew in the face of all other pandemic planning was just yeah adopted like nothing was going on like there was no issue there and then we get into these elements of coercion that you mentioned mm. just there where you're a, um you know a psychologist uh, biderman's chart of coercion the thing that they used in in vietnam to break down prisoners mm. of war essentially using isolation uh monopolization of perception humiliation exhaustion threats occasional indulgences and demonstrating this level of omnipotence that the government has and and every single one of those things we can pin to a part of the approach that the government took to just break us down and ensure that the majority of the population followed the rules from the hard zealots that were all for everything that came their way. Mm. Uh, your Keir Starmers that said Boris Johnson failed because he didn't lock us down hard enough. Mm. You know, that is outlandish as that sounds today. Right. But you have people like that. Then you had the people that were totally against it. And then you had those people in the middle that just kind of went went with the flow mm. as the stream goes in the middle of that. And, and it, <laughs> It's no wonder that they did. And these moderates, these just the, the good people, if we call them that, is reminiscent of what happened in the 1930s as things started to go downhill. Yes, quite. And some of the and some of the terms used to justify this onslaught on the on the you know, on citizens yeah. also echoes the 1930s, doesn't it? You know, the greater good phrase you use that chilling phrase really this is for the greater good another one that really kind of pushes my buttons is that this is the socially responsible thing to do you know? horrid I think, and I really they, 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 these kind of phrases should should trigger us I, I, I think and I think you're right Sonny as well there was this group in the middle who understandably to a large extent I think just didn't want the hassle you know it was it's only a mask it's only for three three weeks <laughs> just to flatten the curve just... it's only a one-way system around the supermarket you know it's only not visiting you know grandma for a week or two you know and i can i can kind of understand why you know because you know, it can it can feel a pretty lonely place i'm sure you can testify you know, being kind of this you know, minority voice out there and uh, not following the crowd again yeah normative pressure nudge which is what they've exploited uh so i can understand why people kind of have gone along with it to some extent but i don't want to sound too doom and gloom because i think i think people are waking up a lot more now i think more and more people are kind of putting their head above the, the parapet and over the last few weeks well, i've heard a number of people in my day-to-day -day life who were pretty much very pro narrative pro dominant narrative through 2020 and early 2021, and they've been saying to me things like, I'm not going to wear a mask again. If they, if they try and lock us down again, I'm not doing it. I'm going to continue to see my parents. You know, really kind of, you know. Standing up a little yeah. bit and, yeah. and saying enough's enough. So I, think, I think it is crumbling a little bit, uh, but never never quick enough. That's a problem, of course. And, uh, I no. But I think, especially coming on to the next one, is that Susan Mitchie, who was one of the members of SAGE, um, you know, working on the behavioural insights there that the government was utilising, is now in charge of something similar within the WHO. And we know that the WHO have just recently also declared monkeypox and other international pandemics. So as much as it 
feels like people are waking up to what was happening around them. There's also this element of that chart of coercion isn't going anywhere. And it's as powerful as it is because it works, despite the fact that people have known about it for X amount of decades. Um, it's not something you can easily protect yourself from. Mm. Um, these nudges that are there are there for a reason and they work for a reason. So what can we do if we are waking up to it? How can we avoid making the same mistakes and falling into the same pitfalls, pitfalls? Mm. Yeah, uh, it's a central question, isn't it? Um, I think just on the WHO, though, I think you know, they are kind of quickly losing credibility. credibility. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I think, and, and the reaction to the monkeypox, you know, being kind of, uh, you know, it's a pandemic of concern or whatever the phrase is these days. Um, again, I've seen a lot of people react kind of with laughter to that, yeah. that you know, which, which they wouldn't have done back in 2020, you know. So, so I think I, the way I see it, Sonny, is that I, I think because some of the, some of the dominant narrative is crumbling, um, particularly around the vaccines, I think so that's the key one. Mm. Um, I think you know, I think the vaccine efficacy and you know, has been kind of overstated, and the, the the potential arms have been understated, to say the least. Uh, and I think more people are becoming aware of that now, even though they're desperately trying for that kind of information not to get shared. Yeah. Um, and and I think what's happening. Uh, just to go back to my kind of uh, globalist pushing a lot of this stuff, is is that they may be being forced to go a little bit too quickly than they would otherwise have wanted to. Hmm. I think that might be to our advantage because I think you know sometimes they can look quite ridiculous because they're trying to speed of, things up, playing their cards too quickly. Yeah, yeah that's my hope. Any anyway um as far as how can we kind of protect ourselves uh, from nudging and from manipulation um kind of probably three main ways really i, I, I think one is to try and uh, distance ourselves from the sources of the psychological manipulation so here of course i'm talking about just get off mainstream media uh try and do you know, read stuff rather than watch videos and kind of thing. Um, you know, yeah, read books, blah, 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 you know, do a bit of mindfulness training maybe at times, go up, go up in the hills in nature if you could just <laughs> there and spend some time away from it all. I just think simple things like that help just give you a bit of distance because remember, nudges work because human beings spend 99% of the time on automatic pilot fast brains in control so they're not really thinking about what they're doing or why they're doing it the reasons for it you know they're on autopilot and that's what these things exploit whereas if you get you know, get back in nature do a bit of mindfulness disconnect from some of these main sources of uh, propaganda uh, is, a, is a is a key one hmm. um, the second of the three ways of protecting ourselves is to try and develop an alternative narrative, which you know, does involve perhaps reading things that a lot of people don't read and not just being dependent upon, you know, the public health bodies and the dominant narrative, with, you know, skiff or uh view of, of, what's, of what's going on. So I'll try and, you know, read a few of the, you know, read the Great Barrington Declaration, read, you know, read, read some heart stuff, you know, read, yeah, yeah. read just read more widely uh, and, and, and then reflect on on what, what what you're reading but the third one and i think this is really the key one in a way albeit the toughest is to almost we need to stop behaving in keeping with these ridiculous and harmful kind of recommendations you know and i might you know might get a lot of vitriol targeted in my direction from various sources for that. But, but, but you know, I would continue to wear masks. We're perpetuating fear, we're perpetuating nudges. You know, mm -hmm. you know if we continue to follow a lot of these rules, should they come back, you know, which, which they're likely to, I think, in the autumn and winter time, you know, it's, it's only 
keeping six feet apart, not you know, elbow bumping rather than handshake. Yeah. No, that's really is unhelpful. And because uh, again, if we keep behaving like everything is not going to be normal again, then it won't ever be normal again. <laughs> you know, shake hands, hug, you know, let's you know, uh, have fun, you know, interact, drop the mask. Unless you're you know, obviously rampantly symptomatic, of course, like we used to. You know, if I had flu, I wouldn't go to guns to the old mother. Yeah. You know, we use common sense, but all this kind of uh, you know distancing and you know, quarantining the healthy and all this nonsense we've just just got it's got to stop. Well, funnily of- enough, that's what our good friend Susan Mitchie wanted. Uh, she's quoted as saying she wanted all the restrictions to be kept for life from social distancing masks and all the rest of it It, it's uh, again so easy to to fall into that that Mm. trap and that way of thinking and that way of being as well and this idea of uh, going back to normal well there's this idea of a new normal that was touted throughout the pandemic and then throughout the government response of yeah, we're going to the new normal, yada, yada. And that was from, from April of 2020. So we're not even that far into what's happening here. And yet they're already saying, yeah, we're not going back to how things were. Again, that sort of feeds into your idea of maybe there was a bit more planning behind this of uh, a grander scheme of things. And when you say that, then you've mentioned the globalists or the, this idea of globalist entities who were working for each other or themselves. Mm. Who is it that we're referring to here? Mm. Who, who is this they? Yes, yeah, another good question. I think I think it's a, a, a range of people, isn't it? I, I think we're talking some combination of um, your tech industry owners, you know, your billionaire tech owners, your big pharma companies, um, your various World Economic Forum people, your um, you know, Vanguard and uh, BlackRock. Black yeah. you know, this, this, this group of extremely elite, very, very rich people who, who kind of got this vision, as they would call it, for this uh, you know, technocratic inhuman sort of world where we're kind of constantly under surveillance, constantly controlled, um, you know, digitalized systems um, where they can kind of control, in their view, sort of the green agenda, for example. You know, I I can picture a time if we carry on down this route, Sonny, that we reach a point where, you know, we don't have cash anymore and uh, my kind of debit card I'll, I'll, I'll be in the shop one day and I'll, I'll kind of try and buy some bacon or something <laughs> sausages and there's something else and you'll go oh, can't do that you've exceeded your your monthly limit for, for meat this 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 year or, you know, or this month or or you said something online that we don't like so exactly, exactly you know and again I would have thought that's pretty conspiratorial going back a couple of years but the more I delve into this now you know, I've realised how naive I've been and uh, these things are real undoubtedly and I think we do need to resist them. See, I'm, I'm with you uh, it, in that I, I also see this bigger picture. There's um, an episode I recorded uh, with a chap named Arno Wellens. He's a financial journalist, used to work in the financial industry. Mm. And he looks through all the white papers, looking at these ideas and these things, how they've come across and how the EU are signing everyone up to have a citizen number by this summer and how this idea of a central bank digital currency, although it's now coming in, it's actually something that they've been planning for quite some time. And the idea of a central bank digital currency of no more cash, like you said, helps to get rid of this mass inflation and gets money to just be ones and zeros on the computer so it can be manipulated very easy. And it's also something that is very quickly equatable to the Chinese social credit system, which, again, like you say, it sounds quite conspiratorial. But if you look at China, 
and see what they're doing. There are people there that can't buy bus tickets. And it's very easy to say, oh, yeah, but that's China. And he crossed the road wrong. And that's their rules there. So that's what they do. Okay, that's that's fine. You can say that. But then in Canada, we had people who were just donating to a protest, have their bank accounts frozen. They didn't even have to turn up. This is Western civilization, if if we want to call it that, and 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 say that they said no, your bank accounts are done, you don't have access to your money anymore. So the idea that once money goes completely digital, which for all intents and purposes looks like it is going to, unfortunately, then you do lose power. You lose power in buying, and then you're potentially going to be told where you can buy. And where you can sell as well. You know, this is something Rishi Sunak was talking about not too long ago in Parliament about introducing the central bank digital currency in the UK. And these cards, these cards, credit cards, I believe a couple of them have already been piloted in, in the UK, yep. albeit on a voluntary basis for the time being, where you can actually get this card and it would limit the amount you spend each month. On a variety of yep. things they've got carbon credit cards as well whereby if you're uh even if you've got a thousand bucks in your bank account still if you've gone over your carbon tax limit then you can't buy anything else you're screwed for the rest of the month good luck getting some meal on somebody else's meal ticket yes i really am concerned about our direction of travel um not so much from myself now because i'm you know 63, nearly 64, you know, but like my kids and the grandchildren, you know, I do worry uh, about the sort of lifestyle that they're going to gonna have. Yeah. And uh, the one we've taken for granted, is that I've taken for granted throughout my life, throughout my 63 years on the planet, of having some, you know, basic freedoms to see or by and large who you want to see and move around the planet, you know, pretty freely by and large, you know, all those kind of things we all took for granted. Um, I think it's, um, I I don't know if you're familiar with the um, book In Order to Live by Yomi Park. I'm not, no, No? I'm really the Naomi Wolf one at the moment. Oh, uh, nice. The Edward Kennedy uh, one as well on the poetry, which was an eye on Oh, that's a brilliant book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, Yomi Park is uh, a dissident essentially from North Korea. She escaped and she um, basically gives you a play by play of her life growing up in North Korea and up to her time of escaping North Korea, her journey out to South Korea through China and then over to the U S and one of the things that she talks about briefly in the book is that there was a generation who would be old enough to remember life pre the Kims, but no one of her generation and will know anything about it. And her parents won't speak about it. And it's one of those unwritten things that, that just goes unsaid. And it's a bit of, I suppose, norm nudging in that you you don't speak about these things. And anyone who doesn't follow the dictatorial way of being there and wearing the right clothes under the dictatorship or what have you is then grassed up and their life is then ended. Um, but it's funny to see how you potentially maybe in a different way, we're slowly walking down that pathway of I've now got a seven month old and his life is going to be completely different. I don't know if he will have the opportunity to go fly into the States. You know, if, if dad can get him out to see his cousin or of him going and traveling in uh, Asia or going to see South America, these kinds of things that you and I are privileged to be able to say that it's an opportunity that we could or couldn't do whether or not we wanted to do it whether or not they will have that opportunity is a whole different story, which yeah. is kind of crazy to think. You know, I quite is, privileged. Uh, and I think we were talking earlier uh, about, um, uh, I've just been to Croatia on holiday, and uh, I don't think it's any coincidence that these European people, with exceptions, but by and large have been somewhat less compliant with a lot of these restrictions you know, and quick, yeah. quick with them as well. And I'm sure at least a key part of that is is around having some 
kind of memory, some kind of memory of uh, totalitarian, yeah, mechanical regimes. You know, where sort of in the West don't really have that. You know, we're not we're naive. We've lived too privileged. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, it's that saying that's going around of hard times create uh, hard men, hard men create soft times, soft times create soft men. And, and that's kind of what's happened in the West in relation to those people who have lived under totalitarian rules and it's scary to see. And the reason that I went up to that globalist level was to ask you actually, okay, it's all well and good saying that there are these guys at the top that are pulling the strings like puppeteers but how does that come down to your level and my level here at, at, at that ground level at grassroots because how is it that blackrock and the tech companies have so much control over us the general population if they make up such a small minority and they have to then control all these companies with hundreds of thousands of employees going across all these different sectors how has it been so easy then how, how can you i just think they they are so awesomely powerful um i know one of the more sobering things i did for eight 12 months 18 months ago was just uh, <laughs> just looked at who owned what companies you know and uh, like to take the coca-cola and pepsi cola which i thought was like the typical capitalist competitive not at all, yeah. yeah. You know, naive I, I was, and perhaps still am, sorry, to some extent. You know, I, I thought, wow, they're owned by the same people. You know, wow, I really eye opener for me that. Uh, and I think if you just, if, when you start to 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 research and, and dig about these things, they are awesomely powerful. And they, with their money and influence, they do uh, put a lot of key players in this further down in quite conflicted positions. You know, if you look at our regulatory bodies for, for, the, you know, for the drug, uh, for vaccine regulatory bodies and so on across the world, if you actually look at the membership of that and actually look at the funding and, and the people that are involved in that, it, it's really difficult to find... Um, Clean places. Non-conflicted yeah. individuals, really. You know, yeah. I, I got kicked off Twitter for few weeks of you know last last year because I happened to pose the question about you know uh, can somebody and it was a genuine question I was really interested but can someone kind of point out an academic institution that's involved in vaccine production that's not at least partly funded by either the Gates Foundation or its various spin-offs um, drug company money um, or the Chinese Communist Party it's probably the last bit that got me thrown off a bit. <laughs> Definitely the last bit. It was a genuine question because you know, a lot of our institutions, you know, we look at uh, some of the key players in the UK uh, and around vaccines and some of the colleagues, let's say, uh, actually look at where funding for those departments go to. They, they would, not ridiculous. Function, would not function without this money. So I think there's a lots and lots of people. They're not all, you know, the majority of people aren't bad. You know, they're not all kind of uh, bad actors. I think there's some really egregious people at the top, uh, but, I th but I think in the middle areas and that, I, I think a lot of people are conflicted. I think you know they're either groupthink or um, uh, kind of cut off from reality, or more commonly, I think, conflicted by their uh, you know, by money. Um, you know, if I have to think myself, you know, if I was still in the system, if I was a working scientist in the system, I had a mortgage to pay. Uh, kids to feed, uh, and I knew that uh, you know ninety percent of my department's funding came from these sources, and that they had the power to stop that at a stroke. Really, you could yeah. stop that tomorrow if they if they chose to, and I'd be I'd be kind of uh, vilified, maybe lose my job, certainly not not get any more grant money, any research money. You no, know, I would I behave. You know, and, uh, and it's, a good, it's a really key question to reflect on, I think. So I think a lot, a lot of people are in that position. And they might rationalise that they, you know, they agree with the main narrative, but, uh, but I'm sure a lot, there's a lot in there that realise this isn't right. But, you know, are they prepared to kind of sacrifice? Well, the this, was, this was the thing, right? What you're saying about the grant money as well. 
obviously, you know about the Voldemort of drugs, ivermectin. Uh, Tess Laurie was the second author on uh, uh, either a meta-analysis or systematic review. And the main author had come out and said, oh, uh, due to a mistake, actually the results show ivermectin isn't actually useful, to which Tess had a conversation with the fella in private, Talk early, wasn't it? The video to watch that. Oh my gosh, where he openly admits to the fact that they were going to withdraw his funding. So he said what he had to say to ensure that the funding went forward. I think it was 40 million or something like that of funding for, I think it was Liverpool or Leeds University. I can double Liverpool. 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 Ah, yeah. yeah. And um, she said, Yeah, but what about the actual results? What about what's happening here? And his response was, I figured somebody else would uh, continue doing work and research into it. So it would come out at a later stage. Mm. I'm obviously paraphrasing here, but mm. my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Well, it is it's really, truly scandalous, the level of censorship across the, not just the media, but the scientific community as well. Again, it's something that I would never have thought would, would ever happen in a, in a so-called Western democracy. You know, yeah. you just cannot believe really anything in a scientific journal at the moment is a strange place to be <laughs> i don't even believe we live in a true um spirit of democracy now anymore either if i'm deadly honest with you looking at how things so i live in amsterdam in the netherlands mm. and looking at how things went here and looking at how things went in the uk mm. and the us and canada and australia and new zealand it's it's hard to think these democrats democratic countries who are meant to stand up for people's human rights and freedoms mm. are what they say they are mm. had it not been for people like yourselves with the heart group um standing up and saying something mm. and people like your pierre corey's and your robert malone's who said something to poke enough people into saying maybe we shouldn't do this yeah. i think we'd probably be sitting in perpetual lockdowns yeah. had it not been for people standing up well, you may be right, and uh, it comes down to making our dissent visible, I think. Um, Julius Seychelles is a Canadian journalist. I don't even read any of his stuff. So I'm really, not familiar. Yeah, really worthwhile reading him. You know, he, he talks about we've got to, we've got to challenge, what's he call it, this, uh, this illusion of consensus, this idea that you know, the large majority of people are on board this because I think that's the case it's that silent middle again with lots yeah. of and we can do that you know we don't have to be a kind of hero to do that I don't think you know um, I could acknowledge it's easier for retirees like me than people who are on the front line um, but uh, we all can do that you know a conversation with the the hairdresser or with a shop assistant or the barman or the, just just making dissent visible yeah you know, in as many kind of places as we possibly can. Your farmers are there in, in the Netherlands. <laughs> They're doing a good job. They're doing a blind job. job. You know, that's the kind of thing you need, visible dissent, you know, like the Canadian truckers was the same, wasn't it? This, this is what we do. And we all can do our own little bit. I yeah. we don't have to get a big platform. I, I just think relatives and friends, you know, uh, I'll give you one example recently. You know, I've, lots of my friendships have kind of, changed over the last two years which is quite sad in one respect you know but it's also got new friends which is good uh, as well uh, <laughs> and uh, we've always had a uh, uh, an annual outing to um, to germany probably the, the lads and dads oh nice I mean, once a year and they ask if i was going this next year and i said well i can't you know I said, well, what's that? I said, well i'm not vaccinated Oh, 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 all that, all that nonsense will be over by next year, won't it? Well, I don't know, it might be, but at the moment it isn't, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and just, it was just an opportunity, really, to kind of share with people who I like, you know, who I respect and in some cases love, you know, greatly and uh, who I like to think respect me and have done for a long time. Uh, just to just to kind of just share this this reality of the world we're living in at the moment, yeah. you know. And, and I just think more and more people have really got to feel able to do that. And I think are doing that, to be honest. I think they are. You know, people have more people are making knocking on it. Yeah. And they're just it's never quick enough, is it? You always want it to go quicker, but uh, I just think we've just got to keep supporting and encouraging people 
to, to do that. F finding areas of commonality. There's usually always something we can agree on, isn't mm. there? You know, I think like with with people around child, like I'm being adamantly against childhood vaccination for COVID. I just can't see any basis for it whatsoever. Oh. And, and you know, you get called anti-vaxxer and conspiracy theories and all the other rude names. But you know, it's, you know, having a discussion with people like that, saying, "Well, hold on, hold on a minute." Now, I think we do share the same broad aim here, don't we? Don't we all want what's best for our children? Yeah. Is that right? You know, and always like connect to certain uh, with a certain kind of area that you can agree on first. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and then if you can picture a descent that's not too far away from where they're at at the moment, I think that can be really helpful. You know, I think they can assimilate some of that info and uh, uh, you can have a keep, keep out of the conspiracy theory, theory idiot boxes. We can, we can start do. soft, start easy. <laughs> well, yeah, you'll find commonality, find some area that you agree with. Point out, like I have done around the vaccines, I've always had vaccinations, you know, the kids did as well, by a large you know, I've just chosen not to have this one. You know, so I'm uh, an anti-vaxxer because of that, you know. You know so you, you can kind of get in there and try and keep out of those kind of, uh, you know, flat earther boxes. Kind of, you know. Uh, and then you can potentially have a meaningful you know, conversation. Kind of yeah. Ideas. yeah. And that's happened more and more recently as well, which is good. And so, so I'm encouraged. You know, I do have some optimism that we can, yeah. we can kind of... I think... this. That's a nice way to to wrap things up as well on a bit of a positive note on how you can broach this conversation with people as well to yeah, it's not solely on vaccine or mask or what have you, but it's also how you can broach the conversation for people to not be coerced into doing something that ultimately isn't good for their health, isn't good for their mental health, which um, you know, is something unfortunately we didn't get time to touch on to. But uh, I, I do think that these are all important topics. And I know there's also an element of corona fatigue for some people where they're fed up of hearing about it and fed up of talking about it. But at the end of the day, if we don't address it, we're likely to commit the same mistakes. We can't let them get away with uh, moving on quickly. I'm going to no. hours that they want to do that. So yeah, so you know, quick. Like um, Corona, what Corona? Focus on Ukraine. <laughs> uh. Yeah. Uh, um, how can people then find you? And uh, maybe you can tell them a little bit about Corona Babble as well, as uh, I didn't mention that in the intro. Actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah my, my uh, um, blog is coronababble.com, uh, which is a range of uh, articles on there around uh, uh, COVID, lockdowns, restrictions, nudging. Deprogramming yourself as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah Yes, and some, you know, my, my efforts and others' efforts to date to try and get the powers that be to, to have a discussion about the ethics of nudging, you know, the British Psychological Society and other government committees, you know, I've kind of detailed some of the efforts that we've made over the last two years to try and uh, get, get you know, to open that debate up. Um, smilefree.org is, is a wonderful little organisation of people who are passionate about how unhelpful masking healthy people yeah. and you know, dehumanising it is we need to keep people's faces on show uh, you know, smilefree.org you can find that and come and join us uh, it's still very active fighting the, the masks in healthcare issue at the moment with yeah, the, massive. the chief executives of NHS England, NHS Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland. So we're engaged in a debate with those at the moment. Uh, uh, read stuff on the HEART website, Health Advisory Recovery Team. That's heartgroup.org, heartgroup.org. Lots of good stuff on there. So those are the three main areas, really. Uh, but if I had to give one final kind of suggestion to people to think about is, you know, if you do have ambivalence and some kind of concern about this, do try and make it visible. You descend yeah. to somebody. It's no good just you know keeping it to yourself, really. Yeah. And although I do recognise, as I said, it's easier for retirees like me than people on the front line. So they're the brave ones, and I've got huge admiration for them who who put their head above the parapet. But you don't have to do that. I just think it's sometimes just having conversation with a colleague or a family member or a friend as the opportunity arises. Mm. And if we can, more and more of us can do that, I do think we're at a tipping point. 
Uh, it doesn't have to be the majority of that. I think, you know, there's some evidence about 20%, 15, 20% of visible descent will do it. So yeah, that does the trick. Yeah. That does the trick, yeah. So, or just very obvious descent on the side of the A10 motorway <laughs> in the Netherlands with a bunch of hay bales on fire as it goes. Yeah, I'll be behind the, uh, the <laughs> yeah, doing a bit of storage. I just wish they were getting more uh, coverage. Oh, yeah. Media, of course, which apart from GB News over here, they're, they're getting much at all. No one else will do it, no. No, you're right. But look, Gary, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of your day. It's been a real enjoyment, Tony. Thank you for having me on.